Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on an author, a speaker, and a professional social psychologist. And this is the one and only Dr. Adina McMillan. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy to have you here. Dina, I've done a very brief intro there, but for those who are not familiar with you and your work, please tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, I'm a social psychologist, which differs from a clinical psychologist. In social psychology, we study, I would say we focus on influence, both how you influence yourself to do things, to believe things, uh, to try things, and how you're influenced by the people and the environment around you. So we study persuasion, manipulation, coercion, indoctrination, and brainwashing, anything that has to do with changing your beliefs and behavior. That's awesome. There's a lot to get into there, but what is it that got you into this work? Um, I, I've always been really curious about people, and I come from a, a military family, so we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I got to see, I got to see the world. And I got to see people of all different kinds. And I just, I developed a curiosity. What makes people believe something? What makes people do something? I also looked at the world that I was in and I noticed that everywhere you went, people had different beliefs and different behaviors. So the curiosity was there. And then once I started at university, I came across a social psychology class and I absolutely fell in love. Although I must tell your audience, I classify social psychology as the evil science. Usually when I do a talk, I have a some kind of, of animation with an evil scientist squeezing a brain or something. Because we also study how to change somebody's beliefs and behaviors and convinced them it was their own idea to make the switch. So a lot of what's in our world that is getting people to hold on to beliefs that, especially the ones that are both counterintuitive and destructive, 
are there because somebody on the outside figured out how to kind of nudge your brain and get you to change your mind. That's so interesting. So you've grown up in a range of different places. So mm -hmm. before you started studying social, social psychology, tell me a little bit more about your background and childhood. Where are you from? Where are the places that you've lived? What is it that even got you interested in this? Well, I was born in North Carolina and we moved when I was about eight days old. And that started my trek as kind of all over the place. I lived in the Midwest, lived in the South, um, lived in the West. And then when I was 13, my father was transferred to Germany. So I started high school in Germany and then he was transferred back to the States, but to Brooklyn, New York. So you cannot get a bigger contrast than Germany and New York. But I got the travel bug. So when I left home, I moved to Paris. I've also lived in England. So I've lived in, I think, nine states in the U.S. I've lived in Germany, France, England, and I now live in Australia. I'm in Brisbane, Australia. That's a lot of different places. What was it, it like as a, what was it like moving to Germany in your early teen years and suddenly being in that environment and going to school there after spending over a decade in the States? What was that change in transition like? What was it like from the U.S. to Germany? And then what was it like from Germany back to the U USA? Well, you know, of course, everybody knows about the Second World War. So my expectations moving to Germany were that, you know, here's the land of the former Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. And um, moving from the Midwest, you know, Missouri, where we, I spent a good deal of time in my childhood, is a former slave state. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, we integrated in an all-white neighborhood when I was like seven years old. And as we went to view the house that we eventually moved into, there were kids on bicycles coming behind our, our car saying, get out, niggers. So that was pretty traumatic. Okay, I, you and I discussed this before. Flash forward a year later, and those guys were actually friends of mine. So it just shows you that even if people are biased against you, it doesn't have to be permanent. But it was a characteristic of what I was used to. And I was very surprised moving to Germany that my family faced less racism in Germany than we did in the States. That's and so interesting. What, what was, um, just to get an idea. What, <laughs> okay. What, what sort of timeline are we, are we talking about here? Just so that we can be clear on the time. Well, we lived, well, I lived in, in the Midwest for like six or seven years. Then going to, to high school in Germany, we were there three years, and then we moved back. So I finished high school in Brooklyn. And what I found astounding in Brooklyn is I was used to separation between blacks and whites. But in Brooklyn, it wasn't just racial, it was ethnic group. So you had the blacks in one place, you had the Puerto Ricans in another you had the Jews in one place, the Italians in another, the Anglos in another, it, and none of the groups seemed to like each other. Mm. So I just is this really in the was, is this like the eighties? When are, when are we talking? Yeah, about? yeah, eighties. Okay. And 
I was really quite stunned, but I loved living in Europe. So when I left home, I went to the American College in Paris, which is now the, the American University in Paris. And uh, again, came up against some stuff sometimes, but for the most part, if you are decent and respectful and you like people and you're nice, I have been able to move all over the world because I found that most places I go, I'm very accepted. That's so interesting. So in your own life experience of those different countries that you lived in, you actually experienced the most racism in the U S of all places, yes. more than in, in Germany, France, or UK or Australia, New York. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I don't think that, I think that a lot of people, I think especially a lot of Americans might actually be surprised by that. that um... Yeah, well, but again, please understand that like having, integrating an all-white neighborhood is a kind of a daring thing to do. And those kids, their bias was based on what they'd heard their parents say and whatever. Once people get to know you, a lot of that bias drops away if you're a decent person. Mm -hmm. And you don't have a chip on your shoulder and you give them ground to come back. You know, I think that one of the biggest gifts was what my mom taught us, that there's a difference between ignorance and hatred. And that sometimes people can say things you find offensive because they don't know that it's offensive. And that that person, if you correct them, they may end up being your best friend. So she said, don't see it as hatred see it as, as as some type of ignorance and see if, it, if somebody can come back from that. And I found that to be very much the case. I'd say 97% of the people I've met in my life have been brilliant. Again, based on how you act with them, it's not just about, you know, if people don't know you, and the only time they've ever seen somebody like you is on TV. I run into that sometimes when I go to rural Australia where they, I've had somebody say to me, oh, are you famous? Because the only time they saw somebody that looked like me and sounded like me was somebody that was famous. Um, and they could have said something that, that I could have found offensive if I was really super, you know, easily offended. Mm -hmm. But they were perfectly nice. They were very genuine. They smiled. They talked. They, I don't know. You know, you travel the world. We wouldn't do this if, if we were afraid to do it because we would expect to be treated poorly in most places that we go. Yeah. Hey, look, I think that, um, I think it was, you know, Mark Twain had a, I believe it was Mark Twain had a famous quote about the importance of traveling. He said something like, you know, travel is lethal to uh, you know, any form of bigotry. It was a more, it was a longer quote like that, but it's very true. And I love that statement that your mom said and told you when you were young as younger, <laughs> as uh, you know, there's a difference between. That there's a difference between ignorance and hatred, because that is so important to understand. And I think that oftentimes they are conflate, conflated. I think sometimes mm -hmm. unintentionally, and I think other times uncharitably. I think that people forget that 
there's a lot of stuff that some people just don't know. And there's many types of people that exist in the world that depending on when and where people grow up and the kind of environment they're raised in, a lot of people are raised in environments where they haven't really encountered that many different types of mm -hmm. people. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's actually more the case in the USA, e even to this day, because the US mm -hmm. is still far more segregated in many ways, not not through force, but you know, just due to historical factors and so on, than many parts of say the UK or Europe or Australia, right? In, in any place, especially in any big city, you're always gonna get some degree of segregation and sort of um let, well, let me call it like self self-segregation, right? You'll get a mm -hmm. you'll get a Chinatown, you'll have this area where lots of people from Pakistan live here. There's a lot of people from Jamaica and other Caribbean countries over here. There's a lot of people from here, a lot of people from there. And there are many individuals who grow up in these little pockets to this day, and they don't really see they don't really see that many different types or shades and kinds of people. And as a result, they can be there cannot sometimes there's there's no animosity or or hatred or any type of real bigotry but it's just ignorance and sometimes ignorance can there are times when ignorance and malice can be hard to distinguish you see mm -hmm. this both offline and you see this online right i can be mm -hmm. having a conversation or there's some back and forth that's happening on the internet or whatever and i myself am trying to determine is this person is this person ignorant slash naive or are they being malicious? Are they, are they like being trolly? Are they trying to, you know, be insulting attack or whatever? And sometimes you can't tell. And I think in the real world that happens quite a lot and these things kind of get conflated. And I think we live in an age where people want to be very quick to call one another names or accuse other people of bigotry, accuse people of racism, accuse people of sexism, you know, whatever the case may be based on something that could just be uh, naivete or it could be ignorance or it could just simply be a, a misunderstanding. And I think it would be helpful for everyone to, yeah, just be a little bit more cognizant of that. And also, I think it would be great for more people to travel and just yes. see more of the world and just get a wider perspective and an understanding that, look, no matter where you are with any group demographic of people, however you want to chop up humanity, the vast majority of people are at least are decent or at least trying to be. Mm -hmm. And then also in any group, you know, you've got, you've got the bad apples, right? You've got bad people. You've got people who are criminals. You've got people who are nasty. You've got people who are cruel to one another. You've got, you know, a minority of people who are causing the problems and giving perhaps that group a bad name in, in many ways. And that's just the reality of human beings and, it's not something that's uh, as simple as, oh, someone's nationality or their class or their race or their gender or this or that. It's just like, look, there's 8 billion plus individuals in this world. Each of them has a different personality, different background, set of principles, values, morals, different family structure, different environment they grew up in and so on and so forth. And it creates all of these different personalities. And it's always a mistake to paint with an extraordinarily broad brush um, about any entire group of people based on the actions and words of a few. That's just, to me, it sounds obvious, but people still continue to fall yeah. into that trap. You miss out on too much. I, I, you know, it's really funny because I was thinking when you were talking, I was thinking about one time when I went with my younger sister, we were in a fairly small 
city, I would have probably a large town, okay, in Wales. And they obviously didn't even see a lot of Americans, let alone a black American. And one guy came in and started insulting Americans and talking about how he wouldn't give, you know, a pence for an American and, and everything else. And my sister and I looked around at the room and everybody in the room was just stunned and their faces were just so, they were blushing with embarrassment because this just is not who they were. And I know the Australians for the most part, if they say something that's racist, they get so embarrassed about it because giving everybody a fair go is a really core concept in Australia. And they would just hate to think that they were being ignorant or hateful or something like that. So I don't know. As I said, you know, there are some people. I will tell you, though, I don't know about you. I run into more trouble about being American than I do about being black. (laughs) On a global level, that doesn't surprise me. Oh, you know, sometimes, especially from the Canadians. I mean, oh, my God. When we get offshore, they have teeth. Oh my God, the Canadians. But um, for the most part though, people are just gorgeous. And when you travel around and you look around and you have a smile on your face and you're like, wow, this is really great. People are so welcoming. If you treat their home with respect, they're very welcoming. Absolutely. I wish more of the world were like this. I'm so tired of the divisions. I have close friends who are politically the exact opposite of me and they are just beautiful people and we stick to topics on which we agree which of course there are a lot and we're very decent and if you looked at the media you would think that that wasn't possible wait are you suggesting that you can respect and even be friends with people who you have disagreements with what what sort of blasphemy is this isn't that amazing? Yes, of course you can. Um, you don't have to agree. I don't trust anybody that says that I agree with on everything because I think, are they really telling me what they really think? Or are they just, mm. do they think I'm going to get nasty or disapproving or rejecting if they don't seem to agree with me about everything? Yeah. And if that's the case, right, if you have two people in a conversation who agree and share the exact same perspective on everything, then you, what's you know you only need one of them there right you don't need there's no conversation to be had because you know you may as well just have one person representing there i i have a question dina as a, as a social <laughs> psychologist i'm keen to hear your take on this why do you think that it, it is that there can be such a tendency for people all of us can do this to judge any group based off of the worst members' behaviors within that group. Whether this is, um, you know, oh, there's some bad police officers, so all cops are bad, or there's some racist white people, so all white people are racist, or there's some uh, young black people who commit crimes, and so, oh, you know, black people are just criminals, or there's this group, there's that group. Like, you, you see it with everything, religious lines, political lines, occupational lines, racial lines, ethnic lines, but all around the world, there seems to be this 
tendency and trap that human beings can fall into and do fall into over and over and over again, where they take the actions of a handful of individuals who are within any group demographic social strata, and they just use this to broadly paint the entire group. Why do you think that happens far more than, say, the opposite, which is like taking the the good and the positive and the righteous people and using that to paint, um, you know, to, to paint an entire group. Why do you think there's such a, an over-focus and hyper-emphasis on the negative? Well, I, I think it's because of the way the brain works. And I actually, looking at the divisiveness that we see right now, there's such deep divisions. I actually developed a program starting in 2020 called Healing the Rift. And it's an anti-bias program that starts from the premise of human nature. So it doesn't hold up one group as being good, one group as being bad. These people have to make all the changes. These people get to receive all of this. It's not like that at all. It talks about what bias is, positive or negative, and how we can lose critical thinking when we have biased thought. Now, all of this to say the way the brain works is whenever it separates somebody into us and them, it starts to become very protective of them. It's, it sees them as a threat very easily because it's trying to keep you safe. So it will focus on the danger because it doesn't see that it sees this group. It separates you from that group. It sees that group as, as something quite different from your own people, your own safe haven. And so it will tend to focus on the negativity. But the good news is you can catch yourself if you're doing that. If I, one of the things I teach with the program, which is really, you know, simple, the program itself is quite simple. People have a lot of fun when they learn it, but I also leave them with tools where you can actually just take a deep breath. You know better than to make any decision about any group that you see as a them. Um, If someone is quite different from you and you perceive them as such, and it's, you have to know that your brain is going to try to focus on the negative to keep you safe. You're going to tell your brain, I don't need that. I need to see the group as a whole. And what will happen is they become less them with a capital T and become them with a smaller T. And then if you keep acting on that, eventually the border of what you consider us starts to broaden. And they just become another aspect of us and you will begin to see them as individuals and less as stereotypical caricatures like we often do with with other people i hear that our podcast today is sponsored by the wellness company did you know that nearly 90 percent of pharmaceuticals in the u.s are produced overseas that's an alarming statistic if you don't have an emergency kit on hand it's time to get prepared The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from the Wellness Company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. 
Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. So to sort of summarize that, a lot of it is just due to the human tendency for essentially threat detection. Yes, right? yes. So any, well, everybody does it. It's natural. Yeah. yeah. So any any negative, I think it's why, you know, human beings, it's known we're much more sensitive to negative emotions in general than than positive ones, right? If you put up a video or a post or something online and you get a hundred positive comments and you get one negative one, your, your brain jumps to and focuses on the negative one because it's almost like it misperceives it as some type of some type of potential threat, right? If there's a mm-hmm. hundred people who are out there behaving in a way and one of them is being a bit suspicious or threatening, right? Your brain is trained to focus on that one, which is useful in certain scenarios, but I guess it can easily go haywire and be applied, be misapplied in situations where it really shouldn't be applying. And people then just have, end up put throwing people in very simplistic boxes and not giving individuals a chance and perhaps not even getting to know individuals because they've already put them in a certain box and they've already got a label on that box and they don't like the label on that box. So they're just like, you know what, that person's in that box. So I'm not even going to, I'm not going to bother trying to get that no individual. I don't need to know their name because I already know their label. Well, I would say one thing that's really important about all of this is that people are much more likely to have us and them with capital letters if they don't feel safe. So this is one of the things that I am so wary about because we, especially one political side right now, and I say political, but you know what I mean. It's like a a, a thought side. Right now, the left progressives are really preaching a type of, of mindset that is so easily threatened and the rules keep changing of what's acceptable and what isn't. And that kind of volatility and uncertainty makes people constantly feel anxious and unsafe. And when any of us feel anxious and unsafe, our brains are more likely to stereotype and to be negatively biased by anyone we see as an outsider. So this is another reason that I resent all of this this just extremism because the lack of safety that it provides to us makes bias increase as a natural consequence. Mm. So we've got to get rid of that. It's hurting all of us. Why why do you think it's so attractive to people? Because I, I, I also recognize that this is destructive. This is some divisive polarizing beyond what is necessary and it's not serving anybody well. But I also have noticed over the years that many people seem to be addicted to it. They, they almost seem to like the tribalism and the hyperpolarization and having an enemy that they can, you know, constantly be fighting against and pushing against every single day, even if this enemy is largely imaginary. Well, because what has happened is since 
over the, I'd say the last 15 years or so, um, what has happened is those who seek the, to preach and promote uncertainty and tribalism also have been very overt in rewarding people for joining that mindset. So, you know, I know that in my field, I, my main field of focus is relationships, especially abusive relationships. And I know that for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, I would interact with people and their first point of entry was to almost like a, a, a Masonic handshake. They would make some kind of negative comment about Trump. And if you agreed with what they said, then the world was your oyster. They'd be offering you contracts. They'd be doing, you know, all of these wonderful things. They would say, you're part of our tribe. Mm -hmm. You're agreeing with us to hate these people. You started to see comedians. Every single stand-up comedian was, was making political statements about, about conservatives, mm -hmm. where before... They just talked about common areas that we all found funny. Mm -hmm. But the people who joined in, you got actors who'd been kind of, you know, relegated to obscurity a little bit. They start making really hateful comments about conservative icons. And all of a sudden they started getting work. So for a lot of people, it gives them a sense of belonging. People who felt, you know, kind of isolated or, abandoned or insecure, you start joining one of these tribes that preaches hatred. And it's this, and you saw the same thing in the second world war or prior, prior to the second world war. Yeah. Who were the pe first people that joined the national socialists? It was out of work people, people who felt that they had no hope of, of actually achieving anything in their lives. They were, they were hurt they were often uneducated. They were relegated to parts of society where they weren't getting a lot of, of respect and attention. They join the National Socialists. They get a uniform, and then all of a sudden, they and all of a sudden they have a they're part of a group that has a voice. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful of it, especially if it's founded on our group has to hate other groups our group and it's it's two things hatred of the outsiders but you also have to look at your own group and think to yourself are they constantly changing the rules of membership because the really manipulative ones will change the rules of membership because that anxiety makes you really easy to manipulate and it it makes your hatred for the other much more virulent mm, absolutely I think people have to be very aware and guard against bonding over hatred. I think there's another thing that um, I've said this a few times before that I, I've noticed that I, I'm very careful to define myself by what I'm for rather than what I'm against in the mm -hmm. vast majority of cases, right? I'd rather talk about what I'm in favor of and the things that I support and the things that I like and believe in rather than defining myself by what I don't believe in or simply what I, what I oppose. And I found that those even put you in a different mindset and they change the communication style. And they also change the way that you recruit people to your cause, right? 
I think it's sadly, as you've said, it is it is effective to rally around a thing, a person, or a group that you dislike or even hate. You can you can gather people's passions around that, and you can target their energy and their focus towards the object of hatred. Right? This was demonstrated very well. If anyone's read 1945, and you know they have the said the ten minutes of hate, or <laughs> where they you know they they scream at the yell at the screen for all this time. But you see this happen all the time again, online and offline. You see this happen in the political realm. You can see this type of mobbing behavior on the internet and so on. And yeah, I, th I think people just need to understand and be aware. Look, this is human psychology. We all have a tendency and a proclivity to fall into various types of traps at different time, right? No one is hundred percent immune to propaganda. There's no one out there who is no. un. There's no one out there who is uninfluenceable. Some people are way easier to influence and even propagandize than others. But none of us is free of cognitive bias, right? Where we are complicated machines, we're complicated beings, and we have our emotional side, we have our rational side, we have our limbic side, which is just very sort of immediate and animalistic. And I think simply by being aware of some of this stuff, just by being conscious of it, that mm -hmm. in itself is a massive protective mechanism because you yourself can see when you're falling into, uh, you know, a cognitive, you know, some type of fallacy bias or when you're being pushed in a certain way or when someone's trying to get your get you riled up and angry about a particular thing and you can think okay wait why are they trying to do that or what about this what if i look at it from this angle what about the other sources of this information and so on and it it just just by being aware of it you're less likely to fall into the traps because human psychology has not changed over these hundreds or even thousands of years right where they were the yeah. same creatures were the same animals um, people fall for the same tricks. Something as simple as divide and conquer has worked in every country, every time of history, right? Where you can split up the population to get them fighting against each other. And meanwhile, you can kind of come in and usurp the, you know, and subdue people on a higher level. That's, it's been going on forever. You see it every single day and it seems to always work, which can get frustrating even if you learn things like, you know, sales techniques and pricing strategies and things like that, there's a psychology behind all of this stuff because it works. Yeah. If people couldn't be influenced, you know, the advertising and marketing companies, these would not be multi-billion dollar, if not multi-trillion dollar industries, if you couldn't influence people. If there was no point in advertising, you think companies would throw so much money into advertising? No, of course there's of course it works, right? There might be people who are there like, advertising doesn't work on me. It's like, yes, it does, bro. Like it works on everyone to some degree. Well, uh, one point I would really love to get a, across because you have a very thinking audience of people who follow you. It is, it's, it is so important to understand we can all be influenced. So many of the psychological mechanisms that are put into play will work on anybody it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Intelligence is no protection. They work according to saturation levels. So that if you continue to be exposed to the information, you will get influenced. And even just saying to yourself, I can be influenced, can is a really strong first step to keeping you safe. I know that one of my main efforts is I have the only domestic violence prevention program 
in the world. And it's a shame because I wrote it 15 years ago, but it's, it's a shame it's the only one still. But one of the categories, you know, and, I, and one of the things I start at the very beginning, one of the things that makes it preventative is I don't wait until after somebody's in a relationship. I show women and girls especially, but even guys, I show people what abusers do, the tactics they use to lure someone in and the psychological mechanisms they use to start conditioning them from the very beginning. And one of the areas of vulnerability for women is to think you're too smart to get caught. And I would say that about all manipulation. If you think I'm not going, I can see through manipulation, I'm never going. No, a lot of this stuff works on different layers of the brain. I can be influenced and I've been trained in this. I know myself, I have to be careful about what I expose myself to because my brain will normalize, accept, and adapt to whatever I continue to expose it to. So when I come across material that goes against my principles, I turn away, I stop reading it, I turn it off, I don't pay for it. I just keep it at arm's length. I'll I'll look at it enough to know what it is because, of course, that's my field. I have to study it. But I won't watch endless, you know, when I'm watching, let's say, a streaming show, um, when I get some time, because I have like, I'm like you, I like 15 jobs. So when I'm not working and I want to just brainlessly marathon a, a program, if I see something that I find offensive and goes against my values, no matter how much I'm enjoying the show, I turn it off. That's because interesting. Because I have to edit what comes into my brain. My brain, the parts of my brain, my subconscious, my limbic brain, my reptilian brain, they don't have a filter. Mm. If I expose them to something, they automatically think it's okay. Okay. So I, have a, I, have a, I have an immediate question here. So how mm-hmm. do you how do you balance that with the concerns about the opposite of that right so take take the most obvious example right we have a lot of um with young people in particular for example at universities there's this idea that um you know they become anti-free speech in certain ways right they want to deplatform mm-hmm. speakers or if someone's viewpoints can be labeled as harmful or dangerous or even hate speech or this or that right People are guarding themselves or excluding themselves from hearing a range of viewpoints that they may say go against their values or they may say, you know, oh, I I disagree with that thing. So I don't even want to I don't even want to hear it and I don't want other people to hear it. And we need safe spaces and we need trigger warnings and we need this and that. So how do you how do you align what you've just said there with what? Um, I've just referred to there and which is an idea and concept that I know I'm certainly critical of, but both of us even maybe. So, yeah. So where's the, here's the difference. Okay. Go for it. Here's the difference. And it's very important. The neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, the rational, logical language based part of your brain can, 
It can extend exposure to various thoughts. It has judgment. It, it, so it is actually a good thing to constantly expose your mind to new ideas, concepts, and thoughts. I've changed my mind about things after I come across sufficient, compelling evidence that my previous way of thinking was wrong. So I, when I said not exposing myself, I wasn't talking about somebody coming on campus and saying, and, and you know, espousing ideas that, that differ from my own. That's actually good for me to be around because it allows me to think, okay, I have this view, can it hold up against that? It's going into that frontal part of the brain that is fine. It can handle it. So to, to protect that part of the brain is just censorship. It is not a protective mechanism. I'm talking about things that go into the subconscious that embed themselves in the limbic brain and the primal brain. So I'm talking about things like storytelling, music lyrics, um, subtle things in your environment. I'm talking about influence mechanisms. I'm not talking about just information and evidence. We need to constantly push up against our beliefs with new information and evidence because we could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And we need to test that out. And I think having universities, universities used to train people in critical thinking. They've gotten to the point they don't do that anymore. They used to have students as, as a regular part of their training have to argue a perspective that was opposite of their own just so that they'd learn an alternative viewpoint and a perspective. And it was really good training. Now they're saying you need a trigger warning because someone doesn't share your views. That is a, that is a Machiavellian totalitarian evil that needs to be fought against with everything we have. Because if there is sufficient evidence against someone else's perspective, they should be able to just speak about it and rationally talk about it. And if you, they either have a point or they don't. I either have evidence or they don't. So when I said I don't watch net, you know, like a Netflix drama that has those values, it's because storytelling and especially music or magic, if you look at every culture across history, they've always taken their sacred texts and put them to music. Often they have people actually move and dance when they, when they would say these things because that goes so firmly into the parts of your brain that influence your life choices. So I'm not saying university students should allow themselves to be indoctrinated or brainwashed. I'm saying they should be educated. And what they're fighting against is getting educated. And that's the whole reason for paying that fortune that they're paying to be able to go to university. I hear that. Dina, switching gears a little bit. Another mm -hmm. topic that you speak on a lot and you write about a lot is relationships. In fact, you have recently put out a book. Let me get the title right. You wrote a book called Fascination with the Devil, Why Women Love Emotionally Dangerous Men. That's yes. a very provocative 
title right there. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's a woman listening right going saying, hey, I don't love emotionally dangerous men. Um, no, first, actually, the women are all saying, oh, I need to get that. I'm I need to get that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so I guess the obvious question is, why do women love emotionally dangerous men? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Um, I think that there is a component of, of female culture, normal culture in most societies that teaches women that we can transform a man, a bad man through the power of our love. So it's the beauty and the beast archetype. Um, so we get that from the time we're little, where we're taught if you're constant, true, loving, nurturing, supportive, you can turn this beast into a, a, a handsome prince and live happily ever after. And it's amazing how many of the films that are targeting adult women still have that same fundamental storyline running through it. So you add that, and for the women who really take that on board, um, it's it makes them vulnerable. And I would say again, over the last 15 years, I've seen more and more shows, more and more music videos, more and more uh, cultural icons where these guys are just the opposite of what would make a really strong, loving, solid partner. And they're being presented to women as the ideal. And a lot of women are buying into it. That's interesting. Um, can you give some examples of that? Because I, I feel like I, on one hand, I, I, I sort of sense that, but I also sense that there's the opposite, right? You hear uh, there's also been this sort of, emasculate emasculated male figure that's often presented in tv shows or cartoons or movies whether this is the the, the bumbling stupid dad or just you know men being e either either being you know predators and nasty or just being fully incompetent and stupid basically um it doesn't seem like there's that proper healthy balance. So I don't know. Do you no, observe that isn't. same thing? Okay. There is a war on masculinity right now. And in fact, it's so funny because some, I was doing something for my publisher for my website and I was looking on a, a stock photo place that I have a subscription and I typed in masculinity. I was talking about something that fits very well here. I was writing something for my website on the true alpha male. And so I went on to get a little photo. Um, I typed in masculine man and all I got was toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity. And it's like, no. Okay, so what happens is this, when there's a dearth of masculinity, women will be often be attracted to the kind of guy who's unapologetically masculine, but he's not the right kind of masculine. There is a very positive, strong guy with principles and values that is a true alpha. He is the, the natural leader. He's, he's just principled. He's fantastic. But if he's not around, women will often be attracted to the alpha imitator who's also capable and unapologetically masculine but he's also really selfish and exploitative 
and lacking in principles and will do anything to get what he wants. And if women aren't taught the difference between the two, if they aren't taught that there's an alternative, sometimes they will go for the alpha imitator, which of course, if you look at music video, a lot of music videos, you look a lot of TV shows. I mean, the Wolf of Wall Street, for instance, is a perfect example of a, a, you know, toxic masculinity, so to speak. I don't, although I don't like using that term because I don't want masculinity to be linked with something bad. Mm-hmm. Masculine men are a positive thing. And what most and heterosexual women are naturally attracted to them. And they have to stop pretending they're not. Although if you looked at a lot of the content in films and TV shows, oh my goodness, these men have no testosterone whatsoever. They are weak, submissive, but in real life, those guys get relegated to the friend zone. That's true. Because most women really don't want that. But I don't want them to go for the guys who are going to constantly use them and cheat on them and take them for granted. I don't want that either, which is why I wrote the book. I, I, over my career, I have just met the number, the proportion of women I've met who have really strong attractions to really unhealthy men has skyrocketed. Mm, that's so interesting. as usual, my reaction to coming across the problem is to ask myself, okay, how do we fix this? So I wrote a book on how to change your taste. Okay. Um, why do you, you said that the number of women like that is going up in your experience and observation. Why do you think that is? You've touched on the cultural point. I think there's a major key here, um, but I'm wondering what else you think is going on there besides the cultural and media program? Um, I think, you know, a lot more women don't have strong relationships with their dads. Yep. I was was about to say that's right. That's right. What was in my head? You know, my daddy was there till he passed away. You know, I'm not saying he was perfect, but he was always there. You know, I meet women now I have a girlfriend who didn't meet her father till she was an adult. And when you don't have a, a loving, strong, supportive father, it leaves you very vulnerable to what's going to take the place. And, and you know, somebody that's exploitative and pretending, you won't know the difference because you had that you didn't have that solid father that you could really count on that you saw day in and day out. You've got to know him, warts and all. I don't, we really went awry as a society when we started telling people that, that fathers were superfluous. Dads are incredibly important to a healthy society. Mm-hmm. We know that the kids need moms, but they need dad too. Dad is really important. You can see the difference. So not having that dad has left a lot of women. So they're looking to the media and the media has increasingly presented selfish, exploitative men as the ideal. And, you know, put a little addendum in there saying, if you love him enough, you can change him or something. <laughs> you, get, 
he'll have an accident or a brain tumor or hit over the head and all of a sudden he's perfect. And women are just buying into absolute nonsense. So yeah. this, this war on masculinity is hurting women too. Absolutely. You know, I think it, you, you made so many interesting points there and something's just come to my mind here, which is that I think that people oftentimes forget or fail to even realize that masculinity and goodness are completely different dimensions, mm -hmm. right? So there is no correlation between how it's almost like the difference between being good at being a man and being a good man. Those are not the same things, mm -hmm. right? So you can have someone who is very, very, very high in masculinity and they could be anywhere on the goodness spectrum, right? On the value spectrum. They could be at the, at the worst, they could be a horrible, violent, aggressive, manipulative, narcissistic, maniacal criminal, but they could yes. be, they could be that and be super duper masculine. Right. And so super popular with a lot of the women who read. My yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you can have someone who's, you know, very, you know, low in traditional masculine dimensions, but, and then is anywhere on the goodness scale, right? It's not that mm -hmm. it's not an either or thing. And I think sometimes it's treated that way. So there's this kind of conflation that happens with a man being very masculine. And then there's an assumption that this means he's going to be um, you know, immoral or unprincipled or somehow abusive or aggressive or criminal or whatever, because people conflate the two. And then either is so, so there's almost like a fake, there's a false dichotomy painted where either it's like you get the high masculine and abusive or violent or, or whatever, or you get the low masculinity and then, you know, low masculinity, nice guy. Right. And it's like, and there's no correlation there. You can, you can have, you can have someone who's low masculinity and a terrible and person. He's horrible. <laughs> you well, yes. You yes. You're absolutely right. They do exactly. not go together. No. And, and as I said, though, there is a sense of protectiveness that a masculine man has that is naturally appealing to most females. And these that's why so many guys, whether they're nice or not, if they're not masculine, they get relegated to the friend zone. And that's exactly. one of the reasons, because there's a natural affinity, just like most men want a woman who has strong nurturing instincts and is, is comfortable in her femininity. They don't necessarily want a woman that's going to be competitive with them and try to be as masculine as they are. Mm -hmm. There's usually a difference, but... You're right. I, some of the worst men I know have are very low on the masculinity scale and they get away with a lot because the media has taken such a turn against masculinity that it's very guilty of conflating the two. Yeah, exactly. Where they keep showing men if they're a good man, they're not masculine. Exactly. And it's in the, um... real life, it doesn't work out like that at all. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. It's the it's the nice guy versus jerks debate as if those are the two options. And when we're saying nice here, when people say nice, they mean lacking masculinity, lacking assertiveness, um, lacking leadership qualities, lacking, you know, physical, mental strength and resilience and so on. So there's this either or that's always painted. It's a little bit like how there's this idea that um, I don't know, you know, would you rather uh, 
you, you, there, there's sort of this fake dichotomy on the female side as well, right? Where people have this idea that if you know if a girl is beautiful, then she's going to be she's going to be bitchy and she's going to be nasty and she's going to yes. be like this or that. Or you can have a girl who's you know not very attractive, but she's going to be super duper nice. Again, as if these things are like correlated and opposites, and it's just like that's not the reality of human beings. It's it's really not. Um, it, it might be. I, I think maybe the, some of this comes from TV and media and movies and things like that, mm -hmm. where they're these they're sort of very caricatures. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think it, for the first time, you know, studying history, the first time in human history, usually the storytelling, whether through, you know, through music, through storytelling that you use for kids, that you share with each other, the storytelling would have um, principles and behaviors and social messaging that they wanted to be replicated by the population. But if you look at a lot of what is being promoted in our society over the last 10, 15 years, and it's promoting um, victimhood, it's promoting hyper selfishness, it's promoting a, a pornification and immorality of our society and lack of responsibility. And there's nothing good that can come out of using these powerful influence mechanisms to convince people to act against their own best interests. But with regard to the masculinity, one thing I do want to say, I am, as I said, I, I just wrote something about the true alpha male. And one of the things I'm going to be teaching on my website is to, to teach women how to identify a true alpha male. And you'd be happy about this, Zuby. I'm also going to be teaching them how to be compatible with one. Because it's not like ordering from a catalog, okay? You can't, I, I, gosh, I meet so many people It's like, they have this list. And I meet male and female like this. With a long list of characteristics they want in a partner. And they never really think about the fact that that person's looking back at them. What do you have to appeal to somebody that's got these qualities? Yep. So if you want a guy who's a true alpha, who's both strong principle, people are naturally attracted, people are naturally um, going to listen to a true alpha male, but you cannot be somebody that is foul-mouthed and difficult and overly aggressive and selfish, and he's not going to want a mate like that, and he has a lot of choice. So if first, I can help you find one, and I can also help you be compatible with one. And there may be some sacrifices that need to be made. <laughs> what do you think is the hardest challenge that young women are facing today? The, no role models. They're not being taught what they need. I mean, there's, I have some very young women who live in my, you know, just away from home kind of young women who live in my building. And I have befriended them all. And they come to me and talk to me about their love life problems. And it's so scary what they're being taught about, about relationships. They're just given no guidance whatsoever. They're not taught how to carry themselves. They're not taught how to value themselves. I think, you know, the, the people who taught women that our sexuality should be cheaped have a lot to answer for because I don't think we gain with that at all, ever. 
Um, they don't know how to choose a partner. And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about expecting the world from your partner while you're just a regular person and you have all these faults that you won't work on. I'm talking about having good self-awareness, working on what you have to work on, being realistic in what you ask for in a partner, but also not having low standards either for yourself or in who, whom you choose. And nobody's, I'm teaching them this because nobody else is. Mm. Well, I think it's it's part of a wider social phenomenon which has been going on. You know, it's where a lot of the victim and entitlement mentality comes from as well. But it's this idea that, you know, essentially the world revolves around you and you're mm -hmm. perfect and great just the way you are. And every single other person and society as a whole and the culture as a whole must change and bend to you rather yes. than you having to change and improve yourself to actually achieve the outcomes and relationships and things that you desire. There's nothing wrong with having high expectations, but the higher your expectations, unless you want to live in delusion and you want to be sad, then the higher your expectations of others, then the higher your expectations of yourself have to be. There's nothing wrong with aiming high and wanting to be surrounded by great people and wanting to have good things, but you have to sacrifice something in order to achieve that. You have to build yourself up. You have to, you have to work on it. If you're a guy who's, you know, a hundred pounds overweight and you're broke and you've got terrible style and you're sitting there playing video games and smoking weed all day. And you're talking about, you want to, you know, you want your wife to be a, a supermodel who is submits to you and is a great cook and has a wonderful personality and is super loyal and she's amazing and whatever. It's like, okay, bro, like there's nothing wrong with having those expectations, but then you got to sort yourself out. Otherwise you're living in complete delusion. The idea that you should just be entitled to have everything you want. Like there's nothing wrong with wanting um, a Lamborghini, right? But if you want a Lamborghini, then <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to get it if you're working at the level of a Skoda or a Toyota, right? There's nothing wrong with wanting a Toyota, but like there, these things are at different echelons and you're going to sound crazy. You're going to sound deluded if you want and feel that you're entitled to things that are way, way, way beyond the level that you're willing to work for yourself. And I, I just see that, I see that happening a lot. I mean, you see it even with the whole, um, quote unquote, body positivity, fat acceptance thing, right? It's oh, like, yeah. no, you, you don't need to lose weight. The entire human species needs to alter their perceptions of what they consider beautiful and attractive. And, oh, you're not the problem, but those men who don't think you're hot, they're just fat phobic and they're just bigots. Oh, and they're probably racist too. And, <laughs> um, you know, we need to change them. We need to change the cultural standards of beauty and what people even find attractive to fit to you rather than, hey, maybe you need to take some accountability. And if this is something you care about and something you prioritize, then you need to prior prioritize this thing in your in your life rather than trying to just change everything and everyone else to completely, um, you know, comply to you. I just think it's a massively solipsistic, entitled attitude. Um, yeah. And it's been heavily indoctrinated in a lot of people from pretty young, it seems. Well, we're having a society right now where there's an expectation of not only being given things you haven't earned, but there's an expectation that every you're you're allowed to pretend 
and everybody else has to pretend with you. So you see that with the gender ideology where you're supposed to pretend that humans can change sex, which is not true. Um, but with the body positivity movement saying that you're bigoted if you don't like this, or you're, you're having people saying, if you have a preference for someone who looks a particular way, you should be willing to get involved with someone who doesn't meet any of those standards or else you're a bad person. Yeah. Um, and I hope nobody gives into it because like with the whole thing about the body positivity and obesity is, is white supremacy or, you know, criticism of, of obesity is white supremacy. They're also expecting physicians to ignore the health risks that come along with obesity. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's just, but there's that expectation. I mean, there just seems to be no limit to what you're supposed to pretend to make people within that mindset feel comfortable. And no one wins with this. And I, again, when you were asking, you know, I, I'm sure you saw it, but I saw a young woman. She was average looking, a little bit overweight, quite plain, no real effort on her appearance, said that she would only be with a guy who bought her like a $200,000 engagement ring. He had to make at least $300,000 a year. She wasn't ingenious. She wasn't splendidly educated. Um, I didn't get any feeling that she was hardworking at it or anything else. She just expected to have this because she wanted it. And she was online and it went viral because she was just making a demand that she get all of these things. She wouldn't fit in the world with somebody who was like that. No, of she'd, course not. Be, she'd be ill at ease at every juncture. If you want somebody who's, who's fit and who's hardworking and who's bright and who's capable, you need to fit into their world, which means you've got to work on yourself as well. And as I said, what I do is basically teach things. You want to, now the good thing is true alpha males come in all social classes. So you don't necessarily have to get someone who is a billionaire to be able to find someone who's a true alpha male. They are the optimal mate. But again, they're only compatible with an alpha female. And when I say alpha, I don't mean somebody that always has to be in control. I'm talking about somebody who is at the top of their game, you know, who is nurturing and warm and has things that she does well and is bringing something to the table. If you aren't really, what are you bringing to the table? People need to ask themselves this. What are you bringing to the table? And by the way, Zubie, I also work with men too. One of the things that I am offering as a chorus is for guys to how to move out of their friend zone. They will be relieved for the ones that are actually good men, not just not hyper-masculine, the ones who are actually definitely good men, one of the benefits of my work with fascination with the devil, getting women away from emotionally dangerous men, is that by teaching women to desire good men who will love and cherish them and that they can love and cherish in return, a lot of guys 
who've been relegated to the friend zone will actually be the optimal choice of the kind of women that they actually desire. So it's a win-win for everybody, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Dina, there's so much stuff that we can we can go into. I'd love to have you on the podcast again in the future, but okay. I want to be conscious of the time. But for people who are curious to learn more about your work, where can they find and follow you online? Okay, well, the easiest way is to go to my website, which is www.drdinamcmillan.com. So my name is, that's all one word, all lowercase, D-R-D-I-N-A. M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N.com. So www.drdinamcmillan.com. Um, they, if they want to know about my work in abuse, they can just put my name and put TED, and they can see my TEDx talk where I talk about my Unmasking the Abuser program. And I also have a podcast series called Unmasking the Abuser where I teach about manipulation and control and how to protect yourself from being lured in and trapped in an abusive relationship. Awesome. Dr. Dina McMillan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking uh, to you. Thank you for having me. Talk again. Bye. Bye-bye. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stuntly and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 